tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Welcome, everyone. We're doing a letter show because I've got lots and lots of letters. So uh, we won't open the phones because, well, I'm opening the mail. So let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's open the big book first on the coffee table. Well, we have Genesis, the 49th chapter, and it's a kind of odd uh, uh, reading, uh, wonderful but odd, uh, this is uh, the 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 sort of last will and testament of Jacob. Now, remember, Jacob wrestled with God. He was the grandson of Abraham, Abram, Isaac, then Jacob. And he had two wives and two concubines and 12 sons. And um, he's prophesying. He's This is his testament. Uh, he's prophesying about his sons. And he comes to Judah. He says, you, Judah, shall your brothers praise your hand on the neck of your enemies, the sons of your father. Father shall bow down to you, Judah like a lion's whelp, etc., etc. Uh, the scepter shall never depart from Judah, or the mace from between his legs. Well, what is a mace? It is a war club. It's uh, sort of like a large uh, uh, meat tenderizer with which you bash your enemies' heads. That's sort of, I think that's the maces I've seen. Uh, well, at any rate, the uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is pretty short on messianic prophecies. And this was considered uh, a kind of messianic prophecy. We see one in the very beginning of of uh, Genesis. Uh, he shall uh, crush uh, your head and you shall wait for his heel and that sort of thing. Um, then there's uh, uh, the uh, a star rising out of Jacob in the story of Balak and Balaam. But that's pretty much about it. The Sadducees didn't believe in Messiah because they didn't feel that that the Torah mentioned it explicitly enough. This this was a problem. you got to remember that for Orthodox Jews today, the only truly infallible part of the scriptures, inerrant part of the scriptures, is um, Torah is word for word literally true for Orthodox Jews. And uh, that was... Not quite as true in the time of Christ, though the Torah was unique. The books of Moses, uh, the prophets were respected by some and not by the. Let's move on. 
Let's go to, uh, this is what I really want to talk about because it's tough. Matthew 1 to 17, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. There is a genealogy of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, which I should have pulled up. Uh, 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 let me pull it up. Well, I've got it elsewhere, but let me just, okay. Uh, the, the Lucan genealogy of Jesus is found in the third chapter, the 23rd, uh, verse and following. And it's very interesting because it goes in the opposite direction. The genealogy in Luke starts with Abraham, or rather in Matthew, starts with Abraham. In Luke, it starts with Jesus. It goes from Jesus down to Abraham, then down to Adam. And it says, Adam, son of God. So in a sense, one is going forward, one is going backward. Jesus in the gospel of Luke is the son of supposed, being the son, it was supposed of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matthat. So you got Joseph, Eli, and Matthat. Let's look at the genealogy that we have in today's reading. You go to the very bottom and you realize it's uh, Joseph, Jacob, and Matthan. Two different people. In other words, these genealogies, if you look at them from the time of King David on, are completely different families. Huh? The Bible got it that wrong? Not at all. Let us look at the explanation of it. Um, we see, uh, uh, let me see if I can uh, just sum, summarize this. Well, let's go, let's go to, where did I put it? I put, uh, oh dear, I actually looked it up. Uh, the, the genealogy of Jesus in Eusebius of Caesarea. Now there's a fellow named Eusebius of Caesarea who wrote around the year 350 AD and he wrote a history of the church in three, uh, when in a number of books. Uh, um, is it the first book, the seventh chapter? I darn, I looked it up and of course I lost it. Um, no, I didn't lose it. It's right there. The seventh, uh, chapter seven of the first book of uh, the uh, ecclesiastical history of Eusebius of Caesarea, he deals with the problem of the genealogy of Jesus. This was a problem in the early church, and he quotes someone uh, called Africanus, who was an or Julius Africanus, who was an early Christian historian. And this Julius Africanus noticed the discrepancies in the genealogies of Jesus, that the genealogy in Luke is completely different than the genealogy uh, in Matthew. Uh, well, he decided, being in the first, close to the first century, he decided to go talk to the relatives of Jesus to see what was up. He went, he went and investigated this. You see, this was a problem for the early Christians. And the the family of Jesus explained, oh, it was a leveret marriage, huh? Well, they're very concerned in the Middle East that no no family die out. I remember talking to uh, a Palestinian Christians, and they said we still do the same thing. That if if a family line is dying out, the male line of a family, that they will adopt someone from the nearest branch of the family, uh, and 
they will have the legal, uh, they will carry on the genealogy legally. These these clans intermarried, and that's exactly what Eusebius of Caesarea says, quoting Julius Africanus, that Joseph was from one of these marriages. So Joseph had two genealogies, a legal genealogy and a... Um, uh, a physical genealogy. In one text, it's uh, uh, I think it's in, the t- in Matthew. That's the physical genealogy of Jesus from a different branch of the family of David. But of course, these families intermarried, uh, begat, begat, begat in that, and the other one is son of son of son of a legal genealogy in Luke. So a lot of there are lots of different theories. Now there are scholars who argue that that. Uh, uh, one is the genealogy of Mary, and one is the genealogy of Joseph. The scripture doesn't say that. These are both genealogies of Joseph, and they're not perfect genealogies. But we used to talk about my grandfather, uh, Carl, and uh, he was really my great-grandfather, but we called him Grandpa Carl. Uh, because he was the last one over from the old country, and, you know, he was a loved, uh, he was my mother's beloved grandfather, and so we called him, well, we missed a generation there. <laughs> well, uh, his son-in-law was not nearly as beloved as he was. So uh, these things happen. These are, are uh, very human remembrances, but the point is that those genealogies do not contradict. Now, I, I think the scriptures are clear that one is not the genealogy of Mary. However, Africanus uh, goes on to make a point. Uh, let me get to the end of that chapter. Um, he says um, in chapter or uh, section 17 of uh, chapter 7 of the first book of the Ecclesiastical History. Doesn't that sound scholarly? I'm quoting a, a reference here. Thus far, Africanus. And the lineage of Joseph being traced, Mary is also virtually shown to be of the same tribe with him, since, according to the law of Moses, intermarriages between different tribes were not permitted. Now, that's not true. But uh, that uh, Eusebius is saying this. But the point that he's making is is a real point, that in the Middle East to this day, cousin marriage is very common. And one gets the feeling from things like the uh, uh, the Protovangelion of St. James, which was a very early non-canonical gospel, that the Blessed Mother had taken a Nazarite vow, which they did. And she was married off to an older relative, Joseph, to protect her. They didn't have convents for women, and a woman unmarried was unprotected. So they found an older relative to marry the Blessed Mother, too, uh, who would respect her her vow of chastity. Um, so I don't know if that's at all helpful, but to me, this is a bit of a biblical principle. The scriptures are not a self-explaining book. I shared that yesterday, that, that, that we reverence them, according to... <laughs> Uh, the council document, De Verbum, which uh, the voice in my head pointed out to me, that these are the words of the Holy Spirit that we reverence. Um, This book is not, however, self-interpreting. If you look at it just as one book that is reporting factual history, and not sometimes poetic history, not sometimes a prophetic utterance, it doesn't work. The genealogies are a perfect example of that. They're contradictory. 
Well, if you are able to look at the historical context, and if you are able to look at the continuous tradition of Christian writing that goes back to the very time of Christ, you'll see, oh, they're not contradictory. They make perfect sense that there there was the custom as there is to this day, as there is till this day, of not letting a line of a family die out, but strengthening it through adoption of a near relative. That's called, it's a, it's a variation of leveret marriage. Uh, uh, so these aren't contradictory. They make perfect sense. But if you didn't know Christian history, and if you weren't in touch with the, the universal tradition of the church, you would have to admit, no, the scriptures are wrong. Scriptures aren't wrong. They are, they are absolutely on spot. So I think that's important. And I think, uh, as I was mentioning yesterday, biblical principles, I think that's a biblical principle. So there you go. All right. Well, we are going to go uh, to a break and then we will come back with Mass Hysteria. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Blessed are those who love you. Happy those who follow you. Blessed are those who seek you, O God. Happy all those who fear the well, about what shall I complain today? <laughs> There's always something. <sighs> Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Weddings. I've bad-mouthed funerals. Let me speak ill of weddings. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I better be careful because, well, I think there's almost a a, a, a quasi-mathematical postulate. The more elaborate the wedding, the less successful the marriage. Uh, the, the, I guess the thing that most makes me crazy about, about weddings is, uh, the, 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 well, there's so much that makes me crazy about weddings, but, the idea that this is a sacrament, marriage is the sacrament, really. Uh, um, well, I thought the Eucharist was the sacrament. Well, yeah, but the Eucharist is is a participation in the wedding feast of Christ that's shared in, in the book of Revelation. St. Paul says clearly, the reason that a man and woman get married as Christians is to reflect the relationship of Christ in the church. And that relationship is... It, is lived in the mass, but the, the sacrament of matrimony is is hugely important. However, people really think of it as the bride's special day. Oh, I can hear brides just beginning to growl at me. It's the Lord's special day, and I, I think that when you talk about marriage, um. And you got to have the special music and you want, you know, yeah, it's got to be tasteful. And the, I did a marriage, a wedding for a, a relative uh, who's the bride to be was and her mother both worked in the wedding planning business. They really wanted to do away with the mass uh, because it would get in the way of the wedding. 
and the mother of the groom, my cousin, she she threatened to to bomb the, the the wedding party. I think if they did it, she was a devout Catholic, and it worked out much better than I thought. But uh, this this whole idea of of the elaborate wedding that I think that. There's a great beauty in simplicity. I, I read somewhere that the Roman rite is distinguished by its simplicity. And I think a good wedding is distinguished by its simplicity. But let me just share my, my pet peeve about weddings. Uh, you know, the cute little flower girl and and uh, uh, the cute little, sometimes in the Spanish world, you have the cute little a little bride and groom dressed up and you have the flower girl and you have all these these people all marching up but you have you know you got the two-year-old and she's so cute and she's the two-year-old flower girl and you know what when you do that the wedding is all about the flower girl because she's screaming and she's not going to walk down the aisle and it just becomes chaos that i have seen so many weddings descend into into well chaos because uh, they're overdone simplicity is a beautiful thing so i don't know why i'm fetching about this but i am uh i i don't do many weddings anymore now that i'm retired but boy i've done a lot of weddings and uh um you know that 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 there's a great beauty in simplicity and the more elaborate the wedding well I think the more, sometimes the more, <laughs> the more disastrous it is. That's just a thought on the wedding. But please, if you're going to have the little flower girls, have them at least be of an age where they can walk in a straight line and not scream. Oh, that, I'm just complaining now. Enough, enough. <laughs> well, let's go to letters. All right, and again, we're doing a letter show, so... Don't call in. Besides, I'm clearly in a very crabby mood. I'm not really, but it just, you know, when people make weddings and funerals, kind of, well, we got to have the wedding and funeral in church. Why do you have to have it in church? Well, because it looks better in the photos. That's the point at which maybe you should think that, well, you got to get some conversion going. Well, this is, uh, um, uh, uh, um, a letter from uh, Michelle, who's asking, is the same word for fruit used in the following passages? Um, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, that's, let me look up the Greek ones first, because that one is, of course, in Hebrew. So they would use the Hebrew uh, word. But the other ones... Um, Yes, I believe so. Let me just click away and make sure that, oh, good grief. No wonder there's no, it's the same, uh, um, word. I'm quite sure. Uh, yeah, it is. It's in Greek. It's karpos. And, uh, let me find the word in the Hebrew, but it of course wouldn't be the, uh, um, it wouldn't be the same word, uh, in Hebrew because it would of course be in Hebrew, which is petty. Uh, um, uh, but it's the, it's the generic word for fruit. Uh, so, yes, they are the same words. Um, okay. You must not eat from the fruit of the tree of, okay, uh, good and evil. And the word is, um, 
Um, it is, uh, uh, you shall not eat from, uh, where's the word for fruit here? But the, oh, it doesn't say, it doesn't say fruit in the text. I never noticed that. Um, it's just, you shall not eat of the tree. It doesn't use the Hebrew word for fruit in Genesis 2.17. That's interesting. Um, I'm sure it does in the rest of the passage, but I have to look it up. But back to your query, your question, uh, in the original, um, thingamabob, uh, yes, they are the same words. Uh, um, the word for fruit, uh, that's, uh, uh, fruit of the spirit is, uh, um, uh, they're all the same word, fruit. Uh, so I hope that helps, Michelle. Okay, now let us look at another letter I've got from, uh, this is from Marsha. Uh, uh, on a podcast, you talked about the reason for societal case, chaos now being liturgical abuse, but I want to know more about this. What types of abuse? Changing the Mass for Latin into English? No, that's not a liturgical abuse. Also, um, you're so right when you mentioned we've forgotten sacrifice, sacrifice for the greater good. Liturgical abuse really is the idea that the liturgy is about me. That's, that's, that's the ultimate source of liturgical abuse. That, that, uh, when the reformers 500 years ago said that the Mass is not a sacrifice, but it exists for the consolation and instruction of the people, God no longer was the object of our worship, but we were. And I think that that's when this began to change in our society. And shortly after that, you saw the world break down into uh, war. Perhaps a third of, of the population of the German-speaking states were killed in the wars of religion. Untold numbers of people were killed in the wars of religion. Before that, uh, the idea of, of a world united around the sacrifice of the Mass created what was called Christendom. And uh, there was something called the peace of God, that it wasn't perfect, but it really did work, that that the church would excommunicate you, which meant you couldn't go to communion anymore, you couldn't go to mass anymore, uh, if you if you violated this peace of God. And it said things like, uh, you can only fight with other combatants, you can't fight during Lent, you can't fight during Advent, you can't fight during the Christmas season, you can't fight during uh, Easter week or Holy Week, um, and uh, there were all these rules that hemmed in war. And if a nobleman in Europe didn't didn't abide by these rules, he was excommunicated. And that meant that his vassals no longer owed him allegiance. They did not have to provide soldiers for his wars. And it really worked in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a large way. Now, not perfectly. But then when the unity of Christianity was severed, uh, we went into the wars of religion. And I really believe that that was, you know, you want to talk about chaos? The Reformation was chaos. It, it, it simply was. There were the peasants' wars in which uh, the peasants, reading the works of the reformers, said, well, we don't need kings, we don't need uh, priests and bishops. Why do we need uh, nobility and the kings? So they would rise up and slaughter everybody in the manor house and then... Uh, Luther said uh, in his pamphlet to the German nobility, his letter to the German nobility, he, he said, smite them, hip and thigh, kill them. Uh, 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 and they did. Hundreds of thousands of people died in Germany in that first uh, outbreak of war. And then, uh, lo and behold, uh, 
it descended into what they call the Thirty Years' War, in which huge swaths of 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 Northern Europe died. I mean, this is history, and I think that really started the the uh, decline of the faith. Uh, the Thirty Years' War clearly did the decline of the faith in 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 Europe. That that uh, religion became a thing that you killed others for. Uh, well, didn't that happen in the Crusades? Not to this degree at all. And, well, these wars escalated. Eventually, by the time First and Second World War are done, European civilization <laughs> was done. And, and that cancer really has infected the whole world. If God is so good, why are all these religious people killing each other? They weren't killing each other for religion, not for the Catholic religion. They were killing each other over this idea of, um, uh, of well, I can make it up as I go along. I really believe that. I think there's a clear historical uh, um, uh, thread that leads from, from uh, the Reformation Wars to the secularization of European society, of which the Americas and and uh, the English-speaking world is part. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I think that uh, um, that idea that, that life is about me is at the exact opposite pole of life is about sacrifice. And when we stop being united around the sacrifice of the Mass as a civilization, our civilization began its descent into the current chaos. I Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, eh, I'm, I've been wrong once or twice, I'm sure. All right, let's see here. How are we doing, How are we doing time-wise? Should, we, should, should I do another letter to your voice in my head? Or, okay, let's do another letter, and then we'll go to the word of the day. Hold on. Okay, come on, come on. Okay. Um, oh, this is just... Uh, looking for a good book. I have a 30-something nephew who is presently incarcerated due to drug charges. He is not highly educated, but is an intelligent man. Is there a book you can recommend that could inspire him in the direction of wiser choices and getting his life together? Though not religious, he is now asking for books to read since his activities are so limited. Yeah, I can recommend lots of books. The first book I would recommend is, you know me, The Screwtape Letters by by uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, then I would recommend, um, you know, I would recommend uh, Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ. You know, St. Ignatius Loyola was converted when he had to lay in bed convalescing, and all he had to read was Lives of the Saints and... Uh, and um, uh, uh, a life of Christ. So, uh, if it was good enough for Saint Ignatius Loyola, I I I give I give uh, your nephew a shot at that. So, uh, um, yeah, the the uh, 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 Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ is a very good one, and then a Good Lives of the Saints. Uh, he'll read them, and they might work. That that's what I would recommend. Um, of course, there are a thousand good books, but those are just those are stories, real stories about real people. All right, we're going to go to a break now, and we're going to come back with a word of the day, and then there's a few more letters that I can read.
The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. I'll meet you at church Sunday morning and we'll hold you down in praise. We'll pray to Lord. It's time for the word of the day. The word of the day today is oh. <laughs> oh? Yes, oh. Have you ever noticed it? We say it a lot, oh. It's in Latin and Greek and in many languages, there is an ending on words called the vocative. In other words, when you're talking to someone, you're talking to me. When you're talking to someone, you say, oh, oh, friend, may I speak to you? Oh, it's, it's, it's a word to get your attention. And today we start with something called the O antiphons, because they all start with O. Uh, o sapientia, O adonai, O, o uh, well, O wisdom, O lord, O root of Jesse, O key of David, uh, O day spring, O king of the nations, O Emmanuel, or O God with us. We're addressing ourselves to Christ in these, uh, and, and this is the time of of revved up participation spiritually, we hope, uh, for Christmas. And I, I was looking at the, at the, at the reading and thinking, there are words like whelp. <laughs> you don't use the word whelp much. It means a puppy or a cub. Uh, it's an antique word of doubtful origin. And then there's recumbent. He crouches like a lion recumbent. That means lying down. Who will the yes recumbent yes a recumbent bike we are using that word more often now, but I thought those are useless words so I went to the O antiphon and particularly O Emmanuel, O Emmanuel. People ask me this all the time. Why, if in the prophecy it says you shall he shall uh, he shall be called Emmanuel, we why do we call him Jesus? And I, I always explain that that Emmanuel means God with us. And Jesus was just about the most common name uh, in 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 uh, in the Jewish world at the time of Christ. It was almost as common as Mary. Uh, that that um, it is the name of the common man. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, who wrote uh, about 180 AD, not too long after the time of Christ said that Jesus' name, he wasn't really called Yeshua, which was Hebrew. Well, that's Aramaic for Yehoshua, which is Hebrew for Joshua. It means the Lord saves. He wasn't really called that. He was called by the shorter form, Yeshu. Hence, we get Jesus from Yeshu. Yes, there's no sh in, in, in Greek or Latin, so it became Yesu, and you have to end things with an S if you can. There's a tendency to end things with an S, both in Greek and Latin, and so it became Yesus. Hence, Jesus in English. That's how we got Jesus. But Yeshu, that was the short form of Yehoshua. What is the short form for Joshua in English? Josh. Think about it. At the name of Josh, every knee must bend. And I don't mean, I don't mean our Josh. <laughs> One can nod kindly to Josh. Don't bend your knee. He wouldn't even like it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, the, at the name of Josh, every knee must bend in heaven and on earth, uh, and under the earth. Josh? Yes, it was that common a name. 
And that's the point. That's he's Emmanuel. He was the common man. He, you know, when, when God appeared among us, he didn't appear as a great theologian or a mighty general or a great king or a conquering hero. He was a construction worker. I mean, can you get more normal than that? Uh, Jesus was gloriously normal, as was his blessed mother, our blessed mother. So if you wonder why the prophecy says you shall call him God with us, and they called him Jesus, that's because Jesus is the name of God with us. It's a very common name. So today we start the O Antiphons and we end with O Emmanuel, O God with us. All right, let's go back to letters. Uh, I'm going to leave this anonymous, but my daughter, who is 15, has been in therapy and has recommended that she see a psychologist. Well, I think that's a fine thing. You know, uh, there's a group called Catholic Therapists, and you can find good psychologists through Catholic Therapists who have who who have Christian values as we do. And uh, I think you do have to be a little careful. Um, you don't want to send somebody to a pagan who has no hope. Uh, as the scripture says, do not be like uh, the, the pagans who have no hope. You want to send, you want to make sure you're sending them to a good Christian, preferably, I think, even a Catholic uh, uh, psychologist. And you can get those through uh, Catholic therapists, easy to find on the web. Let me, let me, in fact, I'm, I'm actually going to look it up as we, as we talk Catholic. Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's something called, uh, CatholicTherapist.com. I think that's the organization, uh, of whom I know some members and, and they're, they're very good and very faithful. So, in, you know, the psychologists, psychology is a very good thing. <laughs> You know, there's some people who get all nervous about it because they may have had bad experiences, know someone has bad experiences. But I think the idea of psychologists, well, I, I'm I'm all for it, really. If if you need someone to talk to, sometimes, uh, well, why can't they just talk to a friend? Well, if they can talk to a friend who really will listen, that may work just as well. But the problem is we talk to a friend and the friend says, you know what you got to do? Well, maybe that's not the best kind of listening. Um, uh, listening, the ability to listen to someone is, is really, really, uh, I think kind of a rare gift. So I recommend Catholic uh, therapists in my experience, they, they are, are, um, uh, worth, worth, uh, looking into. So I hope that helps a little. Okay. Let me, let me go back to letters here. All right, let me nix that one. All right. All right, this is a, a little bit a bit long, but I was thinking about purgatory time. Conventional thought process, the soul with some stain of venial sins will have to stay, will have to have uh, the stain removed through some time in a warm place. Then someone who died in 1810 would have more time to roast than a person who died 15 minutes before the final judgment. And the voice in my head just asked if there's AC in purgatory. No, there's not. Definitely not. But as you often say, time and space are meaningless to God and eternity. Therefore, I think different considerations are necessary for purgatory. The soul who is not ready for prime time with the church triumphant has to undergo some penance and pain. That 
time can be spent recognizing the repercussions of broken relationship with God. The recognition will be painful and joyous specific to the soul. As noted above, time is meaningless. While the depth of feelings are more important, this does not mean that prayers for poor souls should not be made because there are many aspects of life after death. Because many aspects of life after death are not understood. Does this make sense? Yes, it does make a great deal of sense. Um, but I think that that we really have to rest on what St. Paul said. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. That that quote from Scripture, which we, of course, get from 1 Corinthians 2.9. Let me, let me pull that up. Uh, um, okay. Eye has not seen, ear has, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. That, you know, when I've met people who've died and lived, tell about it. It's interesting. Some people talk about there was this river and a bridge, or there was this low wall. They're talking about the same thing. They're just experiencing it differently, or they're just describing it differently. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of seeing something in the distance and saying, oh, that's clearly an automobile coming. You go up and, oh, it's a big rock. We like to uh, assign meaning to things that we see, even if we've never seen them before. Uh, like you look at the clouds, you see uh, faces in the clouds or animals in the clouds. There are no animals or faces in the clouds, but we have something called uh, uh, thematic apperception, that we have a tendency especially to want to see faces. People I know who've died and lived to tell about it are experiencing something that has no no parallel on this side of the veil, but they have to live on this side of that veil, and the only thing they can do to share their experience is to describe it in in terms that make sense to them. So I think you know the idea of time. Uh, um, one of the great mysteries of time. Uh, uh, physicists say, is why does time only go in one direction? Why doesn't it go backward? Well, I wonder if in beyond the veil of of this world, I wonder if it doesn't. Um, that that there's no way to really describe what the Lord has in store for us. So when we talk about uh, you know, temporal punishment due to sin, we think of and and fire the fire of purgatory. The fire of this world is is just kind of an analogy for the real fire, uh, the the realness of fire. And uh, I think I've shared this with you that that I thought I was brilliant and said to an exorcist friend of mine, you know, it occurs to me that the fire in purgatory. And Council of Trent says we have to believe there's real fire in purgatory. Yeah, the fire we experience here isn't. I I think it isn't real fire. That the fire that we experience in purgatory or hell, that's real fire. This is just sort of a hint of what it is. But it occurred to me that it is the fire of God's love. And the exorcist said, you're exactly right. That that uh, the fires of purgatory that cleanse the soul uh, are the fires of God's love. I'm going to stand before God who's light and love and everything in me that is not light and love will be burned away by God's God's light. I think it's a beautiful idea. Um, that... that um, uh, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters compares it to 
looking, uh, you know, waking up and someone turning on a bright light. You look into the light and at first it hurts until you become accustomed to the light. That that accustoming our unclean selves to the absolute purity and beauty of God, well, yeah, it's a painful process. And yet the exorcist went on to say something that really amazed me. He said, and the fires of hell are the fires of God's love. I said, what? Yeah. When you have definitively rejected love and you are still pursued by love, love becomes hateful. And the perfect and infinite love of God is hateful to those who have decided they do not want love. Um, I think of the hound of heaven. And I think of uh, the poem about God pursuing the soul. Uh, to be pursued when you don't want to be pursued in this world is is irritating and frightening. Can you imagine multiplying that by an infinity? Uh, uh, so this fire of God's love as the purifying fire of purgatory and the, 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 the fire of hell. Uh, interesting. That's a theory. And to me, it makes a great deal of sense. So yeah, you know, that, that we can't, we can't, we can, experience time and and pain and love and all these things in this world but what they are in reality what they are uh after we leave this this very limited and tiny world um well we have no way of saying we trust the lord and, and i think that that's a very important important um thing to remember all right let's go back to uh to, to letters let me let me just get rid of that one which i think i answered but yeah it's interesting all right <laughs> this is kind of funny <laughs> uh, um, incense aromatherapy is it wrong for catholics to use aromatherapy such as oil diffusers or incense no it's not <laughs> there a simple answer you know that uh, uh you know, incense is an interesting thing. It it really is, of course. You know, the incense that we use in uh, in uh, uh, churches it's really tree sap. So, why why do we use incense? Well, the Bible says, "Let your offerings be made with incense." I always say it takes us back to the temple, and uh, um, the. Uh, uh, incense is is uh, a very evocative thing one of the most evocative of our senses evocative meaning it calls forth a response the most evocative of our senses is not sight or hearing or touch it's smell think about it you smell an aroma that takes you back uh, uh, you know the smell for instance of your mother's perfume that will take you back 50 years. Uh, uh, incense is one of those smells, and I think it is unfortunate that we use incense now only for funerals in, in so many churches. It's meant to be used at Mass. In the olden days, you always had incense at a solemn high Mass and often at a high Mass. And that incense is supposed to bring you back to to this this experience of worship you know that it's it's meant to involve your senses in worship 
But I I know people who cannot stand the smell of incense, and they will claim they're allergic to it. I think some of them, it's because they've only smelled it at the funerals of people they love. And to use incense exclusively at funerals, which I think many priests and many churches do, is is counterproductive. Uh, it just brings you back to sadness. So I, I really, you know, I, I know that somebody wrote in, I, I, I think that clouds and clouds of incense, uh, though they're kind of cool, they do cause people to gag. So I always point out that God has a very good sense of smell. A little goes a long way. Uh, just as cologne and perfume, a little goes a long way. Uh, but still, I think it should be used. I think incense should be used. And, and not simply for the mystical looking clouds it produces, causing people to leave the church in order to breathe, uh, and to pull out the little albuterol spritzers. No, I think, I think it should be about the smell of incense. Uh, that, that, to go, for me as an old fellow, to go into a church, uh, and smell the candles and smell the, 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 the incense, the kind of leftover incense in the atmosphere takes me back to the faith I learned from at my mother and father's knees. Uh, it's, it's, it can be a very beautiful thing. And so incense is a kind of aromatherapy on its own, that incense or certain aromas produce an immediate effect uh, uh, emotionally, and that, that's not a bad thing. So yes, it's okay for Catholics to use aromatherapy, Oil diffusers and incense. Yes. That, that's, uh, what was that your voice in my head to, to say it live? I said it, it's good to use created things for, for the good of, of exactly. the world Exactly. You know, oh, I'm going to talk more about this because I think it's important. We are not souls trapped in flesh. We're incarnate spirits. My body really is me. It isn't just my soul that goes to heaven. My, my body, soul, and spirit are meant for eternity if the resurrection is true, and I'm counting on it. You know, think about that. Your body really is you. That's why you have to take care of it, and that's why you have to live a chaste life and that sort of thing. Um, your body really is you, and uh, the liturgy is meant to touch the whole person. Uh, prayer touches our spirits. The sermon uh, is supposed to touch our, our psyches, the sermons and the readings. And the, the, uh, 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 the physicality uh, of the Mass is supposed to touch our bodies. You know, we touch the Lord. Either if you take communion on the tongue or in the hand, you're still touching the Lord. You're smelling the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's uh, a lot of Eastern churches uh, find the incense a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're seeing bright colors. You're hearing music. You're using all five senses in the liturgy. Uh, you're being touched in all five senses of the liturgy. And I think that that's a very important thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, aromatherapy. <laughs> the, the, the scripture also says that there is no drug created that in itself is wrong. Uh, it's when they are misused that they're wrong. So enjoy the aromatherapy. That was a very short question. Uh, and um, 
uh, I spoke rather long about it. I got a letter from Janine about a Catholic residential trade school. And um, last week I had a letter mentioning Catholic trade school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, she wants to share some information. Our pastor, Father Dominic, uh, actually teaches welding at Harmel Academy a residential Catholic trade school in Grand Rapids. So there are such things, and I would love to see more. A priest teaching welding. <laughs> my father, or my father, my friend Father Branken is a welder. He's a sculptor, so he welds. He welds the superstructure of these of these statues that, that he, he makes. And, uh, uh, oh, the Bishop of Portland, the Archbishop of Portland, uh, Bishop Sample, he was a metal engineer before he heard God's call in his life. Uh, so uh, they have no money for marketing, but I want to mention on the program, they have students from all over the country. Uh, so this is, uh, just look up Harmel Academy. This is Father Dominic from Our Lady of Consolation in Rockford, Michigan. Uh, so, you know, so I, I think that, that this is happening, uh, that, that we need to be able to make a table, a chair, maybe to weld a, uh, a pipe, that sort of thing. So congratulations, Father Dominic, and thanks, Janine, uh, for the, the uh, input, and I really think if you are a person of means and you want to do something wonderful for this country and for the church, Catholic trade schools that teach both the spiritual life and I would say liturgy, the hours and, and the, the Eucharistic liturgy, um, I think that that they could be a great, a great blessing to the country and to the church. And speaking of great blessings, well, <laughs> Drew is coming up, so don't go anywhere.